Hey, this is Boney James, and you're listening to Jazz Is, Not What You Think. Hi, Boney. Hey. Thanks great to have you. you on the show. Great to see you. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, again, I've been, uh, so I've been following your career for quite a while. Uh, in fact, I may have been one of your earliest fans. Um, I was sent a CD of your first album, at least it was the first album that I knew of, from a little label in Texas called Spindletop, uh, which your label mate at the time was David Benoit. And uh, I said, who, who is this guy? It's kind of a funky sound. I haven't really heard anything like, quite like this since uh, my, our mutual friend David Sanborn uh, was, became so well known for that kind of R&B sax uh, even though obviously both of you can play jazz, but that you s stuck in that groove and it, it worked for you, obviously worked for David. Um, tell me what brought you more into the R&B side of things. I know that you played with a lot of spectacular artists in the R&B world uh, that really put you in, a, in a, a direction that set you apart from some of the other contemporary or what some people call smooth jazz players. Well, I guess it goes all the way back to the beginning when I first discovered music. You know, I always gravitated towards the sort of groovy R&B sound. Um, just listening to the radio as a kid in the 70s, there was an awful lot of good music coming out on the R&B side then. And, and uh, bands like Earth, and Fire, Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, Byron Gay, all the Motown stuff. You know, that's just the music that really piqued my interest. And right around that same time, I picked up the saxophone, and it wasn't until I heard Grover in the mid-'70s that was sort of combining the R&B and the saxophone, my two loves together, that I thought got this sort of light bulb over my head that this was this kind of music that really turned me on, and it just always was that way. When I started working as a musician, I did work almost exclusively with R&B bands. My first gig was with Morris Day right after the time broke up, and I was playing keyboards and sat a little bit of sax in that band. And I apparently just had an affinity for, for producing that kind of sound. When I started writing my own music, I really was just determined to try and be truthful to my inner self. And um, I had been really tired of working as a side man, backing up other people and recreating other people's music. So I was just going to go into the shed and try and see what came out. And what came out ended up sounding like what is now known as Boney James music. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So, so what, what's great about that is that I, I remember that first album was, it was really kind of a, an interesting debut album because it, it was, it was, you solidified your place early on with that sound. Mm. Um, and even when back then, few people knew who you were, but then when you signed to Warner, those albums became smash hits. And all of a sudden, everyone knew who Boney James was. In the smooth jazz world, you were the guy. Wow. And um, so, so I've always enjoyed watching that. And, and the thing that, you know, I, I, when I went back and looked at, at your early beginnings, I mean, you played jazz early on. I mean, you were a clarinet player. I mean, that this isn't something that, you know, sometimes we see contemporary smooth jazz players that don't really come from jazz. They just come from sort of instrumental pop. Mm -hmm. But you had those early roots. And yet, do you think that having those early roots helped you formulate your own style with the technique and things that you learn when you're doing more traditional forms of jazz? 
Well, you know, I don't consider myself a great jazz player by any means. You know, I have not concentrated on that language and, and, and have mainly tried to formulate my own sound, whatever that was, and just respond to the music that was coming naturally from within me. And, and, and I've sort of really tried to shy away from using a lot of jazz cliches and, and, and licks and things in my solo mm -hmm. from a very early time. I was really trying to be more, much more melodic. That was sort of my, my concept. And um, but, you know, when you're a young kid and you're learning how to play the saxophone, you, you got to learn that stuff. You know, it's, it's, you learn how to play the horn. And uh, and I did study that stuff. I had a couple of great teachers, um, you know, most notably Bill Green here in Los Angeles. He was a, a great Kansas City born session musician, multi instrumentalist in Los Angeles. And, and I had the great fortune to study this with the horn with him. But like I said, you know, the music that really excited me was was much more of a, a combo of the, the jazz and the and the, the, the R and B. I love improvising and creating on the spot, you know, and that's very much jazz. But in terms of the language of traditional jazz, that's something I've almost intentionally shied away from in, in my own music. Yeah, I appreciate your honesty on that. It, it's it, it's interesting, but you know, it's it's clear that you know, with with or without uh, the jazz roots, um, you love Grover Washington. Did you ever get to meet Grover? I met him once right before he passed away here in Los Angeles. He was playing a little club, not, not you know, medium-sized club. And uh, my then agent took me to see him play and we got to hang out. He introduced me from the stage, which for me as a young artist was really overwhelming. And, uh, and he seemed aware of the music that I had started making. So it was a real thrill. And he was just as wonderful as, as one would have hoped he would have been. Yeah, so I'll, I'm going to give you a little inside baseball. Um, <laughs> I had a little label in the Verve group. Uh, mm that I started with Lee Rittenauer and, uh, and Mark Wexler, who I know you know very well. Uh, and Mark, Lee, and I had this label called IE Music. And we signed, you know, Lee did his Twist albums and then we did, you know, we signed Eric Marenthal, we had uh, some world music, we, uh, and then uh, we signed Al Jarreau. Uh, and then we signed, or I'll, I should say, I thought we signed Grover. Uh, <laughs> Grover agreed to sign with us. Uh, we met him at the Grammys. And um, the, the, pretty much the deal was done and dusted. And then uh, I, I believe, I can't remember whether it was Mark or Lee. I think it was Mark. We get a call from Grover and said, uh, guys, I don't know how to tell you this, but I, I, can't, I can't do it. We're like, well, what do you mean? I thought, I thought we were going to do this. Uh, uh, and uh, he said, no, no, when, when Sony, when he was on Columbia, uh, when they found out that I was leaving, uh, they offered me, 10 records firm. Wow. Now, now Boney knows what that means, but I can tell people not in the music business, it means that they're going to give you money to go make 10 albums and you go make them over the next X number of years. So that's a, a nice advance. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and so we were all gentlemen about it. We said, you know, Grover, you do what you got to do. I mean, this, you can't pass up an opportunity like that. And then he passed away. And it was so sad because for, for so many reasons. But he was just a wonderful guy. And he was a guy who I really, he was my kind of intro to smooth jazz. Uh, it was Winelight, like so many other people that checked that album out and said, yeah. I got to get me more of this. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's, that's interesting that that was such an inspiration. But you've worked with some artists that were, may I say more adventurous, and yet they did funky stuff like George Duke. Uh, George was someone who I just, 
I couldn't believe the versatility from that man. I mean, he could play anything. And tell me, do you remember some of the dates with George? Well, I mean, I first remember hearing George because I was a Frank Zappa fan a little bit when I was a kid too, and he was in one of the great Zappa bands. And uh, and my friends and I, all young musicians, were really like, you know, wow, check this guy out. And of course, then he went on to incredible solo career and producing career and and all the great records that he's made. And, um, mm-hmm. That was just one of the cats that I was so you know amazed that I even came to know him. You know, that's one of the great things of having a career in music is that you get to hang out sometimes with some of the people you grew up idolizing. And George is just, you know, anyone that knew him, he had an infectious spirit. He was just one of those people, if he came in the room, it lit up. Absolutely. um, So, you know, I think the first time I I went over to his studio in his house, it's a beautiful studio he had in his house in uh, in, an outpost, not too far from where I live in Los Angeles. And and it was a, a... compilation record he was making he was doing something with eric benet and i i, I played a solo on superwoman the stevie mm-hmm. thing. can't remember what the project was but um then i just kept seeing him and i'm seeing him around you know festivals and stuff and uh, and finally i had a, a song that, that popped up that i was working on um and I thought, you know, maybe George would appear on it. So I, I he said yes, and I went over to his place, and, and uh, we hung out, and he, and he played the roads on this incredible song. It's called Total Experience, and uh, and I wanted him to play a solo, but it was only an eight-measure solo. I said, you know, George, you need to climax more in the solo. I said, I can't climax in eight measures. <laughs> 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 but he great. did, and um, it turned out great. I'm still really proud of that piece of music that we made, and... Um, of course, when he passed, Al Jarreau did a tribute to him sure. called My Old Friend. And uh, and I actually had a, the honor of producing two tracks on that record for Al. And one of them was a remake of this song that George and Al had done once before. Or George had done and Al wanted to sing on it. And anyway, that got all the, the raw multi-tracks from George's studio mm-hmm. And, uh, and put Al on it and added some drums and sort of reconfigured the track. And it was just great to have George's stuff here in my studio. You know, oh, yeah. you could feel his spirit coming through the computer. It's amazing. Yeah, oh, that's great. So who are some of the other uh, legends that you played with that were great experiences for you? Well, of course, Al Jarreau, George Benson. I got to fly to, to Phoenix where he was living at the time. I don't know if he still has a place there. He probably does. And, and put him on a song called Hypnotic of Mine. And, and that was just mm-hmm. amazing. Um, Philip Bailey from Earth, Wind & Fire got to work with. And, um, oh, my God, I'd have to look at the list. The list of artists I've collaborated with, I was recently no, putting it together for the label. It's the 30-some-odd people. So, And, and then your, your association with Paul Brown has been you know a, a good part of your career uh, tell me how that happened and 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 why that became such a a, a, a i wouldn't say, maybe a turning point but um certainly a, a a collaboration that was formidable in your career yeah well i mean it was instrumental at first you know when i first met paul we were on the road with bobby caldwell i was the sax player in bobby caldwell's band and paul brown was mixing front of house uh, paul was mainly a, a studio engineer you know mm-hmm. Um, he had started as a, an assistant and worked his way up to engineer, had done some really great work with uh, Luther Vandross and had apparently done some work with, with Bobby. So Bobby, you know, asked him to come on the road to do this tour of Japan. And that's how we met. Simultaneously, Paul had produced a few records for Spindletop. 
um, and really had a burning desire to become a record producer. And I had a burning desire to become a solo artist, a writer around that time. So he was going to make a Sam Riney record. Remember Sam. And Sam Riney said, I can't work for these Spindletop guys anymore. <laughs> the business was not so great. And, uh, and but Paul had the budget ready to go. And so he called me up after we got home from Spain. He said, had you ever thought about making a record? And I'm like, man, I've been trying to make a record for three years now, you know, writing songs, making demos. And I'd almost had a shot at Warner Brothers and then it all fell apart. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I got stuff. So we got together. And three weeks later, we were in the studio making the trust cd it was yep. a whirlwind it was unbelievable and then we went on to make another six or seven records i've actually made more records by myself than i had made with paul but of course you know that was when we started it was the burgeoning period of the music business sure. and sure. we had a lot of you know big successes together and i'm very grateful grateful for all the music that we made and you know my naivete i didn't realize early on when i sort of was introduced to his work that he was a guitar player. Well, I thought I, of him I, as a, <laughs> oh, okay, okay, so I'm not alone here. No, no, no. Never, and then I saw him with a guitar on an album and I was like, is he just holding that guitar? Does he actually play? Yeah, and no, then that I was, saw that he does play and he's very influenced by, by George Benson. Yeah, that was all completely new to, I think, almost everybody. I, I knew he had been a drummer in his past life and, and he mainly focused on you know programming beats. I mean, that was one of his great contributions to mm -hmm. some of the records that we made together. Um, aside from his studio wizardry, I mean, he really is a great engineer. He make everything sound amazing. But it was complete surprise that he he was a guitar player and was going to okay. become a solo right. guitar artist. <laughs> okay, I don't feel like an idiot mm. as much anymore. Um, other, another collaborator I know you've worked with for quite a while, who a friend of mine as well, uh, Rick Braun. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, if I remember the the thing that you guys did together that became pretty famous was the Hugh Masekela song. And, and tell me how that happened and, and how that kind of changed and it kind of it pivoted again. Well, you know, Rick Braun collaboration was something that also went back and preceded my time as a, a solo artist, I think. I, I, I was playing as a sideman with a, a keyboard player named Dan Siegel. I'm sure you remember. Oh, I love Dan. Yeah, yeah great guy. And, uh, and he was working on a record and, and asked Rick and myself to come in and play on his record. And he put us in the, in the booth together, you know, playing unison. And the first time we played together, we turned to each other and said, man, we sound good together. It's just, just like that. We sound good together. And then he went on to start making his own records and called me to guest on a couple of things. And then I went on to make my own records and called him to guest on a couple of things. And then my manager at the time, a guy named Howard Lowell, <clears throat> who's passed away now, unfortunately. Um, yeah. I he, knew uh, he, he said, you and Rick sound good together. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should talk about doing a, a collaboration CD, you know, because we were both on Warner Brothers at the time, and Warner Brothers was famous for some of those great collaboration CDs, which was a thing, you know, back then in the, the 80s and 90s. Of course, there was Double Vision with Bob James, David Sanborn, and Earl Clue and George Benson had done this. and and in our generation of artists, no one had done it. And so this was, this was Howard's big idea. And Rick and I, of course, were really enthusiastic about it. And then we sat down and just started, you know, trying to write some songs and see what the album would consist of. And, and uh, I think I brought up Grayson, but I could be wrong. But, you know, we were just trying to think of covers of, of, of 
you know, frontline trumpet sax songs. Song for My Father was another one that we did. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, and then Grayson came up and, and we went into the studio and, and just played. It was an incredible band that day. It was Rick Braun, myself, uh, Paulina DaCosta was playing percussion, wow. uh, John Roberts on drums, great keyboard player from Atlanta, Phil Davis, Ron Lawrence, who's recently just passed away, was playing guitar, uh, Larry Kimpel on bass. And, and it was just a live party take, and it captured something special. That record still sounds pretty good to me. A lot of energy, a lot of energy yeah. there. Yeah. Well, that's great. So, so back, talking about Bobby Caldwell. Uh, I've known Bobby for a while. I know, I know you've been friends for a while with Bobby. You played with him years ago. Uh, is... So he was the cat in the hat, but in the contemporary jazz world, you're the cat in the hat, right? <laughs> and and the, the thing that I've always found interesting is most people that wear hats is because they don't have hair. You have a lot of hair. You have a lot of hair, yeah. Right? So yeah. normally it's to cover the, you know, what's not happening up there, but not for Boney. He's got lots of hair. Yeah. But the hat has really become your signature. It was a very simple, uh, just a true life experience. And, you know, my hair back in the, in the 90s was much longer, down a year, you know. And, uh, and I was playing a lot of those outdoor festivals, and the wind would blow my crazy hair around. It would go in my mouth when I was trying to blow the horn. <laughs> I was trying to put a hat on for these things. And as soon as I put the hat on, people kept coming up to me and saying, man, you look really cool in that hat. So I just responded to the positive reinforcement. And, and next thing you know, I had like a signature look. Organically, there, there, it's 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 the Boney James look for sure, and and, and it, it, it's really funny. Um, my assumption is because you're so identifiable with the hat, sometimes when you take the hat off, um, it makes you a little less recognizable, right? Put the hat back on, I'm Boney, I'm someone else. Um, well, and interestingly, you know, I, I host these smooth jazz cruises with Marcus Miller, which has become a big part. Yeah, of sure. My, yeah. And um, when I'm walking around the ship, I never wear my hat when I'm just not well, I'm not working. And uh, and uh, it, people have learned to recognize me. When I first started doing it, I'd be in elevators. People would be talking about my show, and I'm standing right there. And it was yeah. kind of funny. Yeah, I, I, but I love those experiences. I, I've had that experience happen to me before where we used to – that's where we met uh, years ago at a festival. And um, someone – we'd have a, a booth where we, you know, Give, you know, give away magazines and swag. And uh, someone came up to me and they said, um, I, I know Michael Fagan. I was like, you do? <laughs> so you got to try, you gotta, I'm sure you've done it before. You have to, uh, you know, I, I know I'm going to go see Boney James. Yeah, you should. Yeah, you should go see him. He's here. <laughs> so, tell, so, <laughs> so switching gears, tell me about the new album, Detour. You, this is how many records for Concord now? Oh, golly, I'd, I'd have to Do we lose that. track? Yeah, I know it's my 18th record overall, and I started with Concord in 03, or might be 06, the first record came out, but I think I moved in 03, so I have to count, it'd be difficult, and I did, I went to Verve for a minute. Um, I remember, Trust, yeah. wasn't Trust on, no. No, we, no, Contact was on Verve in, in yes, 2000, and yes. I, I think that was 7 or 8. Anyway, so there was a brief foray away, and then I, I came. They said, come home to Concord, and I've been there ever since. But it's a, it's a number of records, yeah. It might yeah. be. Might and, be and, and you work, I'm assuming you work with my old partner, Mark Wexler. He's not there anymore. No, 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 I know that. Uh, but I but, did, but yeah. during those years. Yeah, it was uh, great, yeah. yeah. Love working Mark's with a him. good record guy. 
Yeah, it, it, what was interesting is so, so we had our IE music label, and um, Tommy LaPuma, who I know you know, uh, may his rest his soul, because he's such a wonderful human being. Yeah, I just love it. Tommy. Um, when he, he was at GRP, and then Universal acquired uh, Polygram. Mm. So as part of that deal, they, they told us it's time to leave. And, um, and so the, we were basically wanted to continue our little label, but uh, we weren't sure where we'd want to do it. So I introduced Mark to Glenn Barrows at Concord. Because mm -hmm. yeah, I'd known Glenn for years since, since he acquired Concord wow. from the original owner, which I don't know if you know the story, he was, he was a car salesman, mm -hmm. Carl Jefferson. Mm -hmm. And he, he was a, a wonderful guy. And, uh, and so I met Glenn way back then. I introduced him to Mark, and lo and behold, Mark brought him on to Concord. The rest is history. He worked with artists like you and did a wonderful job at Concord. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's been a wonderful time. It's a, it's a very friendly label, and things are still going really well. So I'm grateful to, to have the association. So tell me about the, the detour. It's, a, there, there's, it's kind of has a lot of different genres, if you would. Yeah. You kind of purposely did a lot of different things on this record, it seems like. You know, as as per usual, I really just try to start writing songs at a certain point and, and, and it comes out. And then my job, part of my job is to sit back and listen to it myself and think, what is this? You know, how can I mm -hmm. how can I express what I'm feeling from this music in a way that's maybe poetic or catchy or something? And uh, and I was listening to the music as I was creating it. And I thought, well, some of this stuff sounds kind of different. And at the same time, I was thinking about just the world that we've been living in. And boy, things really felt a little different. And, you know, and, and it's been so odd for the last couple of years. And I thought that the word detour just popped into my head. And I thought that really, to me, sums up both of those tendrils of thoughts. You know, how the planet's been on this detour. And my music is taking a little detour. And, and uh, you know, the thing about a detour is you eventually get where you're going. And sometimes it'd be something that you weren't expecting and, and not always bad thing. Um, and I just thought that was a very interesting theme for the record and I, I think it's, it's it's nicely reflective of the sound of some of the music well, that's great well look forward to more albums from boney james it was great to talk again it's been way too long uh congrats with everything uh, hope, okay. hope after the detour you're back on uh, another track uh to wherever oh. you're heading uh we'll follow you as well i appreciate it yeah i'm very excited yeah. I mean, people are loving the new record that layla hathaway is on their first time working with her yeah i love was that that was a detour to, to work with a, one of the cats from the west coast get down that was another detour so it's a pretty exciting time well great well again thanks and great to have you on the show we'll talk again thank you man all right take care